Welcome to the Tell Something Podcast. I'm Mark Moss. I was really calm beforehand. And then when I stepped through the curtain and it was just that light. This week on the podcast, Jenny Pack and I talk about her story of her visit to Hong Kong where her in-laws live. She talks about the anti-extradition law amendment bill movement that has been taking place in Hong Kong since 2019. We also touched briefly on another story that she shared at Tell Us Something about a healing visit to a labyrinth. You'll be able to hear the Hong Kong story after our conversation, and I'll link to the labyrinth story in the show notes on the website. Big thanks to our title sponsor, The Good Food Store. And thanks to our enduring sponsors, CabinetParts.com and Blackfoot Communications. Big shout out to our champion sponsor, True Food Missoula. Thank you for joining me as I take you behind the scenes at Tell Us Something to meet the storytellers behind the stories. Each week, I sit down with the Tell Us Something Storyteller alumni. We chat about what they've been up to lately and about their experiences sharing their story live on stage. Sometimes we got extra details about their story and we always get to know them a little better. Hello? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm okay. How are you doing? I'm just fine. I'm just fine. Beautiful day out. Okay. So have you been going into people's homes still? I have two clients at the moment, and I was asked to take, several times I was asked if I wanted to take new clients, and I declined. So two clients that I see, but they don't have, people coming into their homes other than me. And I started wearing masks in March out of an abundance of caution. So I felt relatively okay still going in. Yeah. And they don't, you know, because they don't have anybody else, it's like the groceries come from me and the yeah. laundry comes from me and that sort of thing. So yeah, how have you guys been doing? We're doing okay. We call yeah. it the Corona Coaster. <laughs> it really is. I mean, kind of is, just, yeah. but if you surrender to not knowing and you just like, I just signed up for the long haul back in March. I was like, we're not all of my historical reenacting things have been canceled except for the daily mansion. They're going to do it all outside. So I feel like I can keep it. If I'm outside, I can keep a distance from people, but it'll be the first and probably only time that I'll be without a mask. Hmm. So, yeah. And I'm waiting to see if they still do it. I mean, they may still decide to cancel it. So, When did she live? Are you, you're doing your same character that you always do? No, no. At the Daily Mansion, I'm the nanny. Okay. And so she was a real... Nanny, her name was Rose Sharkey, and she was from Ireland, and she lived in the late 1800s, spanning into the 1930s, so, yeah. Just trying to think if she was around during the flu pandemic, it would make sense that you would put a mask on. She totally was around during the flu pandemic. I could. I mean, I could. The problem then is, like, there, there's no facial expressions to play off of. Right. You know, it's kind of a, it's kind of disconcerting for people to talk to a mask. So sure. I'm just going to play it by ear. I'm going to make a white one and just have it on me and see, you know. I mean, it could be that you start without it and then you 
put it on. I could, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's kind of an evolving thing throughout the day. It's people move in and out of whatever area you're in, and I'm going to be in the children's playhouse area. So there may not even be that many people that come at all. Sometimes that house has 400 people in it at a given moment, and I I don't know that we'll see... But I could be wrong. I mean, people could just be desperate for something to do and yeah. turn up. So we'll see. Yeah, who knows? I who knows? It is what it is. You can't do anything about it um, except nope. continue to be safe. and. Exactly. Yep. One of the things that's come out of it for us is that mm-hmm. communicating with other people has been really explicit. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah. oh, do you, okay, we're going to go have, good, have dinner together? Where? How right. are we going to be? Hey, are we doing that? Right. Are we doing, we're not, I'm not going to any restaurants, you know. No, no. So my daughter and son-in-law from Los Angeles wanted to come visit because they've been in their apartment for over 100 days and they've yep. been, you know, furloughed and, and all of that. And so they did a, they said, can we come up and visit? And I'm like, and they did a full two-week quarantine in their apartment and then they drove overnight and came in contact with not a single person along the way and I was like yeah if you've been in your apartment for two weeks and not seen anybody or gone anywhere done anything come on up yeah so they've been here for was a week on Wednesday and I think they'll stay another maybe in the next week and then go home but you know (laughs) <laughs> There's a lot of preparation though if you want to just yeah. go see somebody. Yep. Yeah. So I think we have to just take it very seriously. I'd rather do all of this now and get out of this and be able to resume some kind of a normal day to day existence in the future. You know, we could be we could be spinning this top for another year and a half. So Oh yeah. I think we might be. Yeah, we just have to accept it. Yeah, we'll see what happens with the new mandate. Well, I'm disappointed that it's on the business owners to enforce it. It's like, you know, I think it needs to be on the county to enforce it. And the business owner could call in a complaint. But you've got a business owner who has to now... You know, it's hard enough to get people just to not smoke inside or right. not bring their I mean, dogs inside. Right. Yeah, so you're, you're, you're talking specifically about bars, sounds like. Well, that. in my husband's little restaurant. I mean, he has people, people. Smoke in the restaurant? They'll sit by the window and vape, you know. Okay. But he's had people bring dogs in and, oh, they're service dogs. Well, are they? Well, they're right. in training. Well, are they really? Because they don't look like it. Yeah. And people get out of the river and walk over in their bathing suits and, you know, eating dinner in your bathing suit. It's just like there's enough shit to deal with without having to now deal with making people wear a mask. So. And I asked somebody who's old enough to remember when seatbelts were first introduced. Oh, I remember. <laughs> well, I, I remember, too, but I was, I, I mean, you and I are about the same age and. I'm 56. I think I'm older. Than oh, me. you're just a little bit older than so me. So little older. I remember my dad cutting seatbelts out of a new car because they were in the way. 
<laughs> literally cut them out. Yeah, we didn't wear seat belts, and my first car seat was a metal frame with a cardboard seat and hooks that hooked over the back the back of the bench seat in the front. It just it just hooked like a thing that you would hook over your door to hang your clothes on. <laughs> Seriously, wow, ridiculous. Yeah, now you have to have them professionally installed by the fire department and. I don't know. Really? Car seats have to be professionally installed? They should be. They should be. Yeah, you just take it down to the fire department with your manual, and they'll put it in for you. Oh. And they're certified. They have right. people that are certified to install car seats. So yeah. why not? It doesn't cost anything. Hmm. But, you know, hook it over the back of the seat. Yeah. <laughs> it had plastic straps for a seatbelt. <laughs> like, literally. Pla- and my kids, I mean, my oldest daughter is 36. It's like... Her her first high chair was it had plastic just a plastic lap belt <laughs> didn't do any good for anything right yeah well so. my point in bringing it up is you know seat belts now nobody thinks about it no because it's it's the law right and, but still because we're not capable of governing ourselves in every aspect. We're just not as a species. <laughs> we but that's not why I put it on a seatbelt when I get in the car. It's just like adjusting the mirrors and right. making sure the turn signals work. And right. Yeah, I mean driving I the speed limit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, gen- right? generally driving the speed limit. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're on the flat between you know Great Falls and and the pass <laughs> right or to the horizon on that road where uh, by St. Ignatius. Oh yeah. So yeah. calls that the fastest road in America. <laughs> well, I love when back in the nineties, when the Montana speed limit was um, reasonable and prudent, it was right. just like, what does that mean? Yeah. Re- does that reasonable for who? Something different to everyone. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yep. Something different to everyone. So I was we sitting just, in, in Eno's, uh, which is a bar restaurant outside of West Yellowstone, uh-huh. uh, in 1998, and this guy rolled in. He's like, "I can't believe I got pulled over." And you know, this was before there was a number attached to speed limits in Montana, so it was before that. And he he came in and he's like, "I can't believe he pulled me over," and and everyone knew who the officer was they called him by sure. name it was like jimmy or something like that right did he give you a ticket yeah it was 15 dollars <laughs> you know like how fast were you going 115 <laughs> <Right>. like, <laughs> <laughs> so my dad used to keep seven dollars on the dashboard of his car he right. was a traveling sale uh feed and fertilizer salesman and he would often be in a hurry to get his 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 route was like 500 square miles, depending on which part of Montana we lived in at the time. And he'd be in a hurry to get home for a band concert or something that some one of us kids is doing in the evening. He kept $7 on the dashboard because he'd inevitably get pulled over. And it was $7 to get it, to get on his way again. <laughs> and he'd pull over. The highway patrol would saunter up to the window. He'd hand it out the window, and they'd drive off. And it's like... <laughs> 
that was way back when, you know, back in I the, wonder how many of those highway patrolmen did the paperwork and actually recorded No, they didn't. They went the they put it in their pocket and they went out and had a beer afterwards. Exactly. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> pocket that $7, you know. Totally. You get There's two old beers. Gary rushing yeah. home for the kids' band concert again. <laughs> Oh, he's Nail good for him. a couple of drinks. Let's pull him up for <laughs> He's got it on the dashboard. And then they'd radio into everybody else. I got him. You don't bother. Yeah, don't worry. <laughs> yeah, he did that all the time. But he that he drove for a living. That's what he did. So right. he was just ready for it. <laughs> oh, so you told that story, uh, the Hong Kong story. Mm-hmm. It was... You called it Drink This, It's Good For You. Right. And that was yeah. in March of 2016 you told that story. Okay. Why did you decide that you wanted to do it? So I feel that there is something lacking in our society where communication is concerned. Like you can't even get half a sentence out before somebody is talking over you or finishing your sentence for you or trying to guess what your next comment is going to be. And I don't know if you feel that, but in my day-to-day interactions, I feel pretty frustrated when I'm just trying to finish a thought, you know. And I love to tell stories. I do the historical reenacting as much as possible, and I'll stand up in front of an audience for an hour and tell somebody else's story. I thought, you know, it would be really cool to tell my story. So that's why I did it. I wanted to be heard, first of all. And I've been telling other people's stories for so long that I thought it would just be interesting to tell my story. Yeah. And how did you decide to tell that particular story? So that theme was, why didn't anyone tell me? And... I had several stories that I mulled around in my head, and I always have had an Alex story mulling around in my head. And I thought I might tell an Alex story that time, but then I thought, you know, I like to make people laugh, and I like to laugh, and this is my first stab at this, and do I really want to get up there and rip off the scab and change all over the stage, you know? So I played around with that Hong Kong story quite a bit. And the whole trip was, why didn't anybody tell me this? Why didn't any? And there's a joke in our family that I'm always the last one to know anything because my husband, he's thinking about it. He's planning it. He's working it out in his head. And by the time I find out about it, he's, you know, he's been working on it for a year already. Like when he (laughs) quit his retail job and went into his own business. I was the last one to know. And I think he does that because I like to put in my two cents, but he wanted to work it all out on his own. And so this whole trip felt like I'm just following, I'm following these people through this huge city. Well, area-wise, not so huge, but way too many people. And, you know, I don't know what's going on. I don't know where we're going. I don't know how long we're going to be gone. And, you know, like I got on a bus and, Nine hours later, we were still shopping. We'd gone to a shopping mall, and we were still shopping nine hours later, and it was 12 hours before we came home. (laughs) And I had no idea the whole time 
what was going on because they're all talking to each other in Chinese and I'm just standing there like a two-year-old waiting to be told what's happening. So the whole the whole trip just felt like, God, why didn't somebody tell me, you know, that we were going to be gone for 12 hours or that we were going to be eating half of a suckling pig laid out on a board that, you know, snout and hooves and ears and eyes and everything. <laughs> like I never knew what was happening. So that's why I told that one. Well, I think you're right about people interrupting and trying to finish each other's sentences. And, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think you're right. People have a tendency to talk over each other and sometimes it's not to be rude. They're just excited and they want to Right. They're engaging. Oftentimes they're not. And there's a there's a thing that happens too. I've seen it happen with other it seems to happen with middle aged women. It's like my kids are now adults and so they're telling me what they know, but in a way that makes me feel like how could I possibly know that? Because I am old now. And my husband does it to me. We were it happened last night. He he put in his two cents right as I was saying it, or I'll say it and then he'll say it and then it's a fabulous idea because he said it. <laughs> so it's like I just feel to give somebody the opportunity to stand up and speak uninterrupted except for a laugh or, you know, some kind of audience reaction, but just to be heard for that brief amount of time is empowering to people. So I love what you do. I love the whole concept of it that, you know, somebody can just, any and anybody can do it. And then the audience comes and they don't know, they don't even know what they're going to hear. I'll plunk my $12 down. I don't know what's happening, but let's, let's do this thing. And I think it's fantastic, you know, and the support of the audience. Because I had been to a few Telesomething shows before I did it. So I had that, I knew what to expect aspect of it because I'd been in the audience. And they're just supportive. It's like going to a fifth grade band concert. It doesn't really matter what they do. They're doing something and we're all going to be supportive and, and clap. And, you know, I just love that whole atmosphere of community and all of it. Love all of I it. think I'll put that on the next poster. <laughs> it's a fifth grade band concert. Better, better than a fifth grade band concert. <laughs> so much better. But you know, it's like the kids are worried because they're going to do the, and what if I make a mistake? And it's like, it doesn't matter if you make a mistake. No. Everybody's Everybody's there to just be there and to just enjoy what you have to offer. And, you know, not all the stories are particularly wonderful, but the fact that somebody will stand up in front of, what, 800 people? Well, that's and, what it used to be, yeah. Right. And Who knows if we'll get there again. You will. No, We're going to be mean, so desperate. If, if, we'll, if we'll be allowed to, is what I mean. Oh, I see, yeah. I So this is going to pass. This This virus will pass. We'll get it under control at some point. Someone will come up with a vaccine. And there'll be herd immunity if that's a possibility with this thing. It'll pass. This is not the first time this has happened, and and it won't be the last time either. So definitely not. So I think that you know, 
we'll get there again. So we've got Black Lives Matter happening over here, but in Hong Kong, they're they're currently protesting and had been before the pandemic too, protesting the fact that China is trying to take away the liberties and freedoms that have been known in Hong Kong for, you know, over a hundred and some years. Did you hear so, that this American Life episode about that? No, I have family that live there. So <laughs> I know, I know. Yeah, was, no. They followed somebody who was in, you know, she was in her 20s and she goes to work every day. And then at night she gets all of her protest clothes on and goes yeah. out and raises hell. Yeah. And well, she's they like, still can. Yeah, exactly. Because and pretty soon they won't be it, they won't be able to do it. Yeah. When we were over there, the the Chinese communist government was already trying to infiltrate the school system. They were starting their rhetoric in the kindergarten classes, wow. trying to indoctrinate the kids. And when Hong Kong went back to China in the late 90s from British rule, there was supposed to be a 50-year uh, grace period before China would influence itself in Hong Kong. Uh, they call it one country, two systems. So they're ahead of the game. It, China is stepping in way in advance of what they had agreed to. I mean, just think if somebody was trying to turn, oh, they kind of are trying to turn us into something that we're not. But um, these people are scared for their, they're scared for their lives, you know. Yeah. So... Yeah, it's happening there. It's ha it's happening everywhere, and the pandemic probably just g gave people a rest. You know, go in your house, rest for five weeks, and then come out screaming. So that's pretty much <laughs> what's happening. What's happening? <laughs> exactly. Well, I hope after they're finished screaming, we after we yeah. are finished screaming, we have voice left to share right. our stories. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So that was the first time you had told a personal story that that was yours right and had you ever spoken in a crowd that size before I did theater in high school and college so I'm assuming that I've been in front of a crowd that big before I didn't ever do a head count but that was the first time it was just me and the bright glaring light <laughs> the microphone <laughs> So yeah, essentially just me as me, yeah. And how how did it feel like when it was happening afterwards, beforehand, all that? I was really calm beforehand. And then when I stepped through the curtain and it was just that light. It had been a lot of years since I'd been on a stage with a spotlight. Probably been 30 some years since my last play that I did. So that felt foreign, familiar, but foreign. And then just being able to see the front row of faces. <laughs> so I could feel a real energy in my body. And I felt like my voice was quivery just a little bit. But then as soon as I started talking, I was fine again. You know, it was just that first moment of stepping out and being confronted by the light and the pitch black beyond it and 
I mean, I'd been in the audience, so I knew how many people were in there. And it was just like a little disconcerting to know that there were that many bodies beyond that light that I couldn't see. Because when I do my historical programming, I'm just in a room with 80 or however many people come. And I can see every face and I, I like to look right at people as I'm talking and sometimes I encourage them to interact with me. And so just being there, that fourth wall <laughs> really felt like a wall that day. Yeah. yeah. But it was exciting. I mean, I was nervous, but it was an excitement, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And how, how did people respond to your story afterwards? So that particular story, the Hong Kong story, I had some people send me text messages and say, you know, I just about peed myself. It was so funny. But then not very many people responded to that one. The story I told about the labyrinth after my son died, mm-hmm. I have gotten cards. I've gotten letters. I got a Wonder Woman mug and a card um, from a woman who we have mutual friends, but she and I don't know each other at all. And she she said, as soon as you started talking, I knew you were going to talk about Alex, and I was a mess. And she sent me the Wonder Woman mug, like, right away. It came within a week, I think, of, of the show. And I got a card not too long ago from a woman who had heard the podcast and felt the need to reach out. So that one, that one I've gotten a lot more response than the other. And actually, walking out of the Wilma that night, a woman came up and walked alongside me on the sidewalk to the going to the parking garage and just talked to me the whole way. A young man, as I was coming out of the theater, gave me a hug. So that one I felt really moved people to reach out. The labyrinth story. The labyrinth story. Yeah. Yeah. The woman that walked with you, did you know her? No. Nope. I didn't know the young man either. He was standing by the door, and I walked up, and he said, my name is Alex, and he just gave me a big hug. And the woman just walked from just a little ways past the Wilma all the way to the parking garage with me and just talked the whole way about her story. So I feel like when someone hears of someone else who's had a profound loss like that, it it helps to open them up. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful stuff. Yeah, and see, that's not the kind of stuff that you just start talking about with people. No. Like, hi, hi, my name is Jenny. My son died when he was 14. I don't do that. How's your day going? (laughs) (laughs) So when somebody knows your story, they feel, at least they feel safe in your company talking about it, you know. Right. Yeah. Yeah, it's powerful stuff being able to share your story in a safe space like that. It is, and you make it safe. So I remember the first workshop at your house with Louie and Juanita and Susan and everybody. And just the joy of sitting quietly, all of us, and letting the person finish. And walking out of there going, "This, this experience in and of itself should be a thing. Like meeting at friends' homes, everybody tell a story, nobody say anything while they're talking. That should be 
thing because it was so engaging and that silent presence was so refreshing. I loved that. It was really good. Is there anything that you want people to know about your story before they listen to it here? And we're about to about to play the Hong Kong story for listeners. I don't know. It was the whole that whole trip was two sided. It was fabulous and exhausting and it was interesting and and overwhelming and it was just like total culture shock. And this is from someone who's lived in a Chinese family, my husband being from Hong Kong and his sisters and brothers and his mother would come and live with us. And so I have, the Chinese culture is not foreign to me, but being plopped down in in Hong Kong of 9 million people and living in a little family apartment of 500 square feet. There were seven adults in that 500 square foot apartment for two weeks. And it was just, it was fabulous and awful. <laughs> it was, I mean, it was really wonderful, but I was so tired because they just go, 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 go from dawn to dusk. Yeah, it was it was a really interesting trip. I don't know if I'll ever go back. <laughs> well, one of the things that I love about your story is taking a travel story and making it relevant and you cannot include every element of the trip. Oh, no, you can't. No way to do it. And many people, that's their temptation. And you right. were able to focus My on very feet. specific things. <laughs> yeah, your aching feet. Oh, you know? God. <laughs> and so I guess what I'll ask before we leave is, if I am a potential storyteller, and I want to tell a story about a trip that I took, say, six weeks in Europe. What advice do you have for me to narrow the story down to its essence? Right. So the way I did it was I took the theme, why didn't anyone tell me, and I applied it to the one overriding experience that I had throughout the whole trip, and that was my ankles swelling up to an alarming size and my feet just aching and we would walk 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 everywhere or we'd get on a bus and ride the bus to somewhere and then we'd walk forever after that and so while i was enjoying my trip and all the different things that we did and all the places that we went and all the people that we met and all the food that we ate my feet were the one constant and they they just screamed every day. <laughs> so pick the thing that you remember first about that trip that applies to the theme, I guess is what I'm saying. What if there is no theme? Well, pick that thing that you remember first or the thing that you thought about the most and just focus on, like put that in the middle and then tell the little stories around it, I guess. I'm not a good advice. Good advice. Well, you're, I mean, you did it. So, I mean, that makes you an expert. Well, I don't know about that. 
(laughs) (laughs) But there are a lot of different little things that happened around the feet, like the acupuncture and the sea, the cold water of the sea and that sort of thing. So make the feet part of the show. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much for spending time with me this morning. Yeah. I love that we're talking over each other right now. (laughs) (laughs) That's the mutual admiration society. That's kind of, you know, it's necessary. Jenny Pack was born in Raisin, Montana. After living up and down the West Coast, the family settled in Missoula in 1998. Jenny works as a senior caregiver for Home Instead Senior Care. In her spare time, she is a living history presenter, traveling around to libraries, museums, schools, and senior residences, portraying women from Montana's Wild West days. Jenny's story was recorded in front of a live audience on March 29, 2016, at the Wilma in Missoula, Montana. The theme of the evening was, Why didn't anyone tell me? Jenny calls her story, Drink This, It's Good For You. Winter in Hong Kong is just a little bit different than winter in Montana. The daily temperature is about 75 or 80 degrees, and the humidity is around 99.9999% all the time. It sticks to your face. It's like a thin film. You need to wash your face all the time. And my husband had taken me to Hong Kong to see where he had spent the first 23 years of his life visit his family, and meet his friends. And I quickly learned that the three major pastimes in Hong Kong are shopping, walking, and eating. And we did those every day, nine or ten hours a day. (laughs) Now, the evening of the third day, I found myself hobbling from the train to the apartment on painfully swollen feet and ankles. This is something that had never happened to me before, and I'm going through things in my head, what could be causing this condition. It's not my shoes. And I don't think it's all the walking, but I bet the humidity has something to do with it. I felt a little bit like a raisin that had been dropped in a glass of water. I blew up. So that night I slept with my feet elevated, and by morning they did resemble human feet again. (laughs) But partway through that next day, they swelled up again. And I told my husband that something was going on, it's not quite right, and we needed to make a little adjustment to our routine. So he had a chat with his brother, Thomas, who happens to be a Chinese medicine doctor. Convenient, right? And Thomas decided that we should go for our outings in a private car so we didn't have to run to the bus, run to the train, run here, run there. So the next day they came and took us out and we drove all around and saw the sights. And then they took me to this beach at a place called Repulse Bay. But it was really nice. It was beautiful. And it was deserted because it was wintertime. It was actually March, but it was wintertime in their minds. And nobody went to the beach in the wintertime. And I don't know if you've been 
to a big city. There was nine million people in Hong Kong and they all wanted to be right where I was all the time. <laughs> so this beach was heavenly. And I took my shoes off and I walked in the cool sand and then I put my feet in the soothing waters of the South China Sea. And my husband likes to say, you know, it's just the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> but the South China Sea sounds so much more exotic. <laughs> and it was really nice. It was soothing on my swollen feet. And then this big tour bus pulled up and deposited about three dozen mainland Chinese tourists who were all bundled up in parkas to ward off the balmy breezes of the winter in Repulse Bay. <laughs> and I didn't pay a whole lot of attention to them, but I, I became quite a curiosity as I waded around in the water. And my husband came over, and he put his arm around me, and he said, nobody goes in the water in the wintertime. Come away and stop making a spectacle of yourself. <laughs> That night at dinner, my brother-in-law, the Chinese medicine doctor, made a big deal about sitting next to me. We get along fine, but he doesn't speak much English, and there's not a lot of chatting going on. And his napkin fell on the floor, and he went under the table to retrieve it, and then it happened again, and then it happened again. <laughs> and I looked down there, and he was trying to sneak a peek at my swollen ankles. I said, can I help you with something? <laughs> no. He started eating. And then I felt this light touch on my wrist, and I could hear him counting. <laughs> He's taking my pulse. <laughs> and I said, Thomas, is there something you want to tell me? No. He didn't want to tell me anything. <laughs> So the next day, he comes to the apartment and he has a huge thermos and he plunks it on the table and he takes the lid off and the stench that wafted out. It was a Chinese medicine of some botanicals and desiccated bugs or something. <laughs> and he said I had to drink a cup of it after every meal. And the food was really good. <laughs> but a sewer water chaser puts you off your appetite. Just like. And I said, what's in that stuff? And he just shook his head. And my husband said, you don't want to know. And my brother-in-law, who doesn't speak much English, looked right at me and said in very clear English, drink it, it's good for you. That night, when we got back to the apartment, after another day out on the town, he set up his traveling medicine show and proceeded to do acupuncture on me in the middle of the living room in front of all of the relatives. <laughs> and they're standing and watching. Oh. And they see my ankles. Oh. And he puts a needle 
in my leg. And on the end of it is this little wad of incense or something, I don't know what it was, and he lit it on fire. <laughs> it's wafting up into the air. And he tells my husband to tell me to relax. Close your eyes. It's going to take about 20 minutes for this to burn off. Yes, of course, with everyone watching, it's very relaxing. <laughs> we proceeded on in this fashion, the sewer water chaser after every meal, for two weeks. You get this little fruity flavored lozenge, though, after you drink the sewer water. You pop the lozenge in your mouth and suck on it. The, the fruity flavor doesn't quite cut the sewer water flavor, though. It did make me pee. I had to pee a lot, so that was the benefit of it. At the end of our trip, we took a bus to the airport, and my brother-in-law came along, and he and my husband sat in the bus and murmured seriously in Cantonese so that I wouldn't overhear, because I speak no Cantonese. <laughs> but nobody told me what they were talking about. And we got on the plane, and my husband never said anything. And we took off into the air, and it's 16 hours from Hong Kong to Los Angeles. You do Tuesday twice. <laughs> you arrive home an hour before you leave Hong Kong. <laughs> And somewhere over the coast of Japan, my husband finally turned to me and he said, Thomas would like you to see a doctor when we get home. And I said, what else did Thomas say? Well, you might be going into renal failure. <laughs> or heart failure. But don't think about it now, just try to get some sleep. Now, I'm happy to say that the minute my feet touched the tarmac at Missoula International Airport, all the moisture was sucked out of my body. <laughs> and I returned to my normal size. And it never happened again, so I didn't go to the doctor. Now, every time I ask my husband what's in that stuff, he just looks at me with this look, dreaded look on his face. You do not want to know. Thank you. Thanks, Jenny, and thank you for listening today. Check in next week when I talk with Dagny Deutschman. How I would probably deal with someone like that now is really different. I think I would actually confront the person. You know, like I think that I would still do my job, still take care of what needed to be taken care of. But I think I would approach that person and be like, or maybe not approach the person, but call all of the guests in and do sort of like a light public shaming thing of like, hey guys, it's the last morning. And I was super disappointed to find that somebody just took a shit outside of the grouper. And I think that I really enjoyed getting to know all of you for over the course of the week, but this was really disrespectful, and I hope that if you go on a trip in the future, you never do this to anyone else again. Tune in for that conversation on the next Tell Us Something podcast. If you want to support what we do, you can do that financially by donating. 
Go to tellussomething.org and click the handshake support icon in the top right-hand corner. You can also tell someone about the show. Recommend Tell Us Something to just two people who have never listened to it. Please rate and review this podcast on your podcast app. If you ever want to drop me a line, write to mark at tellussomething.org. That's M-A-R-C at tellussomething.org. Thanks again to our title sponsor, The Good Food Store. Shop less, shop solo, and shop fast. Now offering curbside pickup. Learn more at goodfoodstore.com. Thanks to our enduring sponsors, cabinetparts.com, the number one source for cabinet hardware since 1997. Providing the best kitchen cabinet hardware at a great price with knowledgeable hardware specialists, cabinetparts.com is the direct source for all your cabinet hardware needs. Blackfoot Communications. Since 1954, Blackfoot Communications have fostered a reputation based on exceptional customer service and community involvement. They deliver superior technology solutions through trusted relationships and enrich the lives of their customers, owners, and employees. Learn more at blackfoot.com. Thanks to our champion sponsor, True Food Missoula. Offering weekly meal delivery to nourish your family and friends, have a look at the menu and order online at truefoodcsa.com. Thanks to Cash for Junkers who provided the music for the podcast. Find them at cashfordrunkersband.com. Thanks also to Missoula Bone and Joint, providing superior clinical orthopedic care to their patients for over 60 years. MissoulaBoneandJoint.com. Axis Physical Therapy, an enthusiastic team dedicated to providing compassionate and comprehensive care to their clients. Learn more at AxisMissoula.com. Thank you to our in-kind sponsors, Logjam Presents. Top Hat Restaurant and Bar is open with limited capacity in-house dining and takeout. The Top Hat also now features Geodome Dining, social distancing to the next level. Their new private geodomes seat two to six people and are perfect for staying warm and cozy while enjoying local food and drink through the winter months. Learn more and reserve your dome at logjampresents.com. Missoula Broadcasting Company. Learn more at missoulabroadcasting.com. Float Missoula, formerly known as Enlightened Lab Float Center. Learn more at floatmsla.com. Inertia Physiotherapy. Move better, feel better. Stay in motion, inertiaphysiomt.com, geckodesigns.com, missoulaevents.net. Podcast production by me, Mark Moss. Next week on the Tell Something podcast. It's interesting, like thinking about that younger guiding version of myself and where I'm at with it now. Join Dagny Deutschman and me as we revisit her hilarious story of a man rebelling against the groover on a long river trip. To learn more about Tell Us Something, please visit tellussomething.org. Stay safe, wear a mask, take care of yourself, and take care of each other.